0: Silan, am I well? Silan, am We have a silan, am I well? We have a silan, am I well? Silan, We We Hello and welcome to Spoken Word this week. We go to Africa, Ubuntu, One Woman's Motorcycle Odyssey Across Africa, with author Heather Ellis here in the studio at Community Radio 3CR on Spoken Word. Hi, Heather, and welcome.
1: Uh, hi, Peter. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, my book tells the story of uh, a motorcycle journey I did when I was 28 years old from South to North Africa. Uh, I rode over 40,000 kilometres through 19 countries from April 1993 to July 1994. Uh, Before my trip, uh, I was working in the Northern Territory uh, on the fringe of Kakadu National Park, uh, one of the most beautiful and ancient places on earth, but it wasn't enough. I I was restless for adventure and I I wanted more from life. Something pulled at me to search for meaning. Then out of the blue, I got this idea to ride a motorcycle across Africa and it just felt right and I knew I'd do it. I travelled on a a Yamaha TT600, an off-road enduro motorcycle that simply became known as the TT. One of the first things a lot of people ask me about my book is, what does Ubuntu mean? Ubuntu loosely translates, I am because we are. It is a universal bond that connects all of humanity as one And Desmond Tutu sums it up really well by saying, you can't be human all by yourself.
0: Now we have a reading from Ubuntu. One Woman's Motorcycle Odyssey Across Africa by Heather Ellis.
1: This reading is from the end of Chapter 2 and it it explains Ubuntu really well about uh, when I first came across this word, from Cape Town, the ride north took us through the twists and turns of the Swartburg Pass, a gravel road that climbed through a dry mountain range of sharp rocks and steep cliffs to an elevation of nearly 1,600 metres. It gave us spectacular views over mountains and valleys until the pass dropped to the barren plains of the Great Karoo and we followed a straight black line of tarmac into the interior towards Kimberley. In the distance, sun glinted off metal and as the speck grew bigger, we knew it was a motorcycle. A moment later, a BMW R100GS with metal panniers pulled up where we had stopped to wait its approach. It carried two riders wearing matching red, grey and black leathers. They looked out of place in Africa, as if they'd taken a wrong exit off an autobahn. They removed their silver full-face helmets. And the man, tall and gorgeously handsome, with broad shoulders, reached into a side pocket of a bag and pulled out a tin of castle beer. South Africa, it is wonderful place, he crooned as he brushed matted strands of blonde hair out of ice blue eyes. He took a swig of beer and then told us their story. He and his girlfriend were on their way to Cape Town after riding down through Africa, a journey of ten months. Travelling via West Africa to Cameroon, they chose chosen to avoid Zaire and instead had flown with their bike from Yondi to Nairobi. Why, I asked. It is not possible. Zaire is very expensive. One litre of fuel is more than one US dollar and only available on black market, he said. There is no law. It could be civil war at any moment. We skip it. You should do the same, his girlfriend added. Even in West Africa, the food is terrible. The officials are corrupt and all the time is Doné Kido and Doné big. Ah, I am glad we in South Africa, we have hot shower and good hotel. She was stunningly beautiful, an Amazonian woman, her breast straining at the zip of her leather jacket, her golden blonde hair hung in a thick plait down her back. The best thing to do is take the ship to Europe from Mombasa. After South Africa, we go this way back to Germany, she told us. How much money did you spend? I asked them both, not deterred from travelling all the way through. Nearly 20,000 US, replied the gorgeous man as he crunched his empty beer can, tossing it on the ground and reaching for another. $20,000, I squealed. Dan and I both looked at each other. Neither of us had that much money. We'd been told South Africa was one of the most expensive countries, and we had both been looking forward to the lower prices further north. Well, good luck. We go to Cape Town, said the man, and beamed a brilliant smile from his unshaven face before sculling his beer. As we watched them ride away on the long line of black tarmac, I thought of the word Ubuntu, which I had heard from a young African woman at the hostel in Cape Town. She was athletic and strong, with short black dreadlocks. I was in the dining room early one morning, eating toast and reading my guidebook. "'when she sat down opposite with a mug of tea "'and a stack of peanut butter sandwiches. "'Wish woman, why you travel Africa?' she boomed. "'Her voice demanded my attention, "'as if it were the voice of one who rallies others to fight, "'and I thought she might have something to do "'with the anti-apartheid movement. "'I felt drawn here,' I replied. "'There is a kind of humanness to Africa "'that we don't have in the West.' "'My reply seemed inadequate.' and incomprehensible even to me. Ubuntu, she smiled knowingly, her face changing from steely anger to serene understanding in an instant. You will find the way of Ubuntu as you travel Africa. The African people will help you. This is Ubuntu. This is what we want the whites to understand. We can help each other, and together, we can make South Africa great. But it is very difficult. I later read that Ubuntu also means the universal bond that connects all of humanity as one. As I watched the Germans disappear, I understood they had not found Ubuntu, not because it was not shown to them, but because they had not opened their eyes, minds and hearts to it.
0: Yes, I agree with that from that reading, uh, listening to the fact of the Germans measuring things on but they could spend so much money to have a good time. But the way they just... The guy just chucked the beer can on the ground like he didn't care about, you know, the environment. And um, when did you first feel that you were finding Ubuntu? Was it that moment where you met that woman?
1: Yeah, I, I'd never heard the the term before until uh, Cape Town uh, when I met the when I, in the dining room of the, the hostel where we were staying. Um, you may have... Uh, With this trip, I had a travelling companion in the very early days. And I always, like from when I had the idea, I became very completely obsessed with it. And, you know, I would have done the trip without a travelling companion. But I did worry about things like, you know, I I didn't know how to fix my bike. You know, what if it broke down? What would happen? So two months before I was to leave on my trip, I had a travelling companion um, he was a work colleague and we didn't really know each other. We weren't uh, in a relationship and I thought just our common interest in travelling Africa would be enough, but we we didn't get on. We just didn't click and our travelling partnership soon soured. And so in my second reading, it really explains how I felt at that time. I mean, you know, travelling companions are so overrated. If if people want to go travelling and and they're a bit... They're scared to go on their own. They should just go out there and travel because you always meet people. And travelling alone is when you really, you know, find yourself. You really explore so much about the world and about who you are and so many wonderful things um, happen and come your way. And
0: also that you mentioned how you didn't know what would happen, say, for example, if the motorcycle broke down, but it's that vulnerability of of being like if, if the bike breaks down, you need to to meet people and, and engage with people and and ask for help. So it's that that's how we also make connections sometimes by being in a vulnerable situation and and needing other people to assist us or to you know to talk and yeah meet. yeah
1: yeah. So we we uh um Dan and I travelled together um, for five months um, through from South Africa up to Kenya and then from uh, uh, Kenya he left Africa for Europe. Uh, and he he just he, he what happens to some people in Africa is this term they get Africa out and uh they just they they just don't uh you know like the the hardship uh that Africa can involve. It, it's it's like one enormous camping holiday uh, which I loved and I loved the um interaction uh with the people and learning about the culture. I loved everything about Africa. So when he left Africa, I I was not ready to leave, and my trip had just only started. So in my second reading, it, it just really sums up, uh, you know, how I felt about that time when traveling with another. That um, you know, we we just didn't uh, basically we didn't click. So there was no, you know, there was no one to share the the journey with and the stories and the feelings that came up. We did, we we didn't talk, and so it was it was a time where I, I felt uh, it was. Very much undermined my self confidence.
0: Somebody sleep <coughs> somebody sing Hello 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 Somebody sleep <coughs> <coughs> Somebody cry why why? why? Somebody
1: sleep. So this reading is from the beginning of chapter two. Once our ship docked in Durban, we rode no further than a youth hostel in the city centre. Each afternoon we strolled to the mall to drink beers and watch the promenade of tourists. The ship would be in port for a week, loading and unloading cargo. And most evenings, some of the off-duty crew joined us as the sun cast long golden shadows across the Indian Ocean. A few beers with them would usually end at a bar open till the early hours. A week went by and my agitation grew. This was not the Africa I yearned for. I consoled myself with the excuse that to avoid the risk of becoming road carnage, it was best we stay in Durban until after the Easter long weekend. The hostel's staff had repeatedly warned us about South Africa's notoriously bad drivers. While Dan slept, I walked for miles each morning along the golden sands of Durban's beachfront. The council authorities kept most of it clean of the black sludge left behind by the container ships and the sand was only spoiled at the far reaches. I found myself walking there on my 29th birthday, feeling like I had nothing to celebrate and no one to celebrate it with. I reached an abandoned jetty, its pillars thickly encrusted with barnacles. An elderly African man sat alone, fishing with a hand line, He was withered by age and sun and had a wise Yoda-like face. Catch any fish, I asked, and leaned to peer inside his plastic bucket. The sea is not so good today, he said, and waved a leathery hand for me to sit beside him. Where are you from? Not South Africa, he said, with a frown. And I got the feeling that a white woman striking up a casual conversation with a black man was not normally done here. Australia, I responded, dangling my legs over the side of the jetty as he did. It's my birthday today. I'm 29, I gushed like a small child wanting to share my special news. Well, well, happy birthday, he grinned. You are so far from your family. Do not tell me you are alone here in Africa, he asked, his toothless grin gone, replaced with a frown. No, I'm with a friend. We're both on motorcycles, I said but instead of lightness and expectation, my words were filled with sadness. "'We will ride all the way to North Africa.' "'It's true,' I added with a sudden defensive perkiness, as I interpreted his look of surprise as disbelief. "'I believe you. I can see you will do it. "'But you have a problem with your husband,' he said, his black eyes piercing into my soul, like long tentacles probing for the truth. "'Dan, my husband? No!' We're just friends. But I don't think he holds the same desire to travel Africa as I do, I said, letting the words spill out as though I were confiding in an old friend. Maybe he is afraid. You are a woman and do not see the dangers. But this Dan, he is a man. He see the bad. He must protect. A woman does not see the world the same way as a man. If any bad thing should happen to you, he will be blamed. It is a heavy burden for a man to look after his woman, he said. I am not his woman. We are travelling companions. That's all, I replied, a little annoyed that he didn't get it. It does not matter. You are still a woman and he is still a man, he said, and gave a quick jerk of the line as a fish nibbled the bait. Maybe this journey is not for him. Be patient. You are new to Africa. As he pulled in the fishing line, I looked out over the sea. It was choppy with white cabs under a cloudless blue sky. If what this old man said was true, I didn't need to be held back by another's fears when I had enough of my own. We sat in silence, and as the old man rebated the hook, I considered the source of the tension between Dan and me from a different point of view. While I had accepted we didn't click, I suddenly wondered if he was also filled with resentment against me because he saw me as the cause of him giving up his job, his friends, and possibly his life. Was the old man right? And this journey was not for Dan? Had he convinced himself otherwise, just as I had convinced myself we would make suitable travelling companions? Do not swim in this sea. It is full of sharks, said the old man, startling me from my thoughts as he threw out his fishing line. I gasped. In those first few days in Durban, when we joined the crew from the cargo ship drinking beers and shooters and smoke-filled bars, until the early hours, I had swum in the sea. On one of those nights, I'd needed fresh air and had escaped the press of sweaty bodies and thick cigarette smoke on the, the arm of a merchant seaman who had led me to the beach. I stripped my bra and pants to swim waist-deep in the gentle surf, ignorant of the threat that lurked just offshore. I'd also been oblivious to the threat on the beach where meaty hairy hands reached for my body which I'd so casually, so naively stripped to my underwear. Once again booze had made me careless and in my drunkenness I was unaware of my vulnerability until the cold sea sobered me. It was another lesson and this time I vowed to heed it. I'm going now, I said and held out my hand to the old man his skin was rough, but his touch warm.
0: You're listening to Spoken Word on Community Radio 3CR with author Heather Alice, reading from Ubuntu, One Woman's Motorcycle Odyssey Across Africa. From that point in, in your novel, in your memoir, you're travelling alone, and, and what was that like for you?
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah, so, so my travelling companion, he, he left Africa from Nairobi in Kenya and after that I was on my own and that's when this journey really began. Um, you know, I planned to ride uh, around Kenya for a month or two and then cross Uganda, Zaire, and West Africa to North Africa and as soon as I started travelling on my own, everything fell into place. Nothing bad happened to me and I always received help and the next reading I'll do, Really, it's a it's a good example of of that traveling alone and being in a situation where um, you know I have a flat tire, and and I received help. I'd I'd never changed a flat tire before. Um, you know, I, I'd practiced changing it before I left on my trip, but you know that that'd been months ago. so this reading is from Chapter 5, from the start of Chapter 5. As day changed to late afternoon, the intense heat gave way to a cool breeze, and it was another of those times when I wished the road would go forever as I travelled north towards Lake Takana. A smooth dirt road cut through scrubland dotted with flat top acacia, and I was grateful it was freshly graded with no bone-jarring corrugations. That night, I would stop in Marilal, a small town in the heart of the Samburu district. I rode past minyatas with Samburu men in warrior garb, armed with long spears and beaded adorned women carrying wood piled high on their heads. The graded section of road went for only a few kilometres, then deteriorated into potholes, which I avoided as best I could until my rear tie began to drift. At first, I didn't know what was wrong, but it soon became apparent I had a puncture. I parked off the road near a spindly tree and shade as I knew this would take some time to fix. I lifted the gear sack off the back of the bike and placed my tools neatly on the ground before laying the TT unceremoniously on its side to rest on the panniers. This positioned the rear wheel off the ground where it could easily be removed after undoing the centre bolt. Before leaving Australia I'd practiced fixing a flat. It was one of the things I did over and over again but that had been months ago. Alone under the tree I struggled to lever the tyre off the rim. I needed strength to make the gap with the screwdriver with one hand and push the lever between the tyre and the rim with the other. The more I struggled the more I panicked The sun cast long shadows and it would soon be dark. In desperation, I threw the tie levers at the bike. Buggy you, I yelled, then held my head with blackened hands. Hello, you have problem? said a deep voice behind me. It was so unexpected that I fell on my bottom from where I was squatting on my haunches. Staring down at me were two Samburu men dressed in tribal red and ochre robes. They both carried spears and the taut muscles of their bare shoulders glistened with the setting sun. You need help, one of them said, and leaned close to look at the rear wheel lying on the stony ground. Flat tyre, I said, and retrieved the tyre levers I had discarded so angrily a moment before. I must get this in here, I poked at the spot between the tyre and the rim, then handed him the lever. With the screwdriver, I gently pushed down on the rubber, and he easily slipped the lever into the gap. "'Thank you,' I said as I removed the tube and prepared it for the glue and patch. A nail had punctured the tyre, one of the many that rattled from the wood crates on the back of trucks carrying supplies north. "'Where you go?' the other man asked, as he squatted beside his friend. "'Marillel, and then Lake Tacana, I said, and pointed to the side cover and the roughly drawn world map of my route from Australia. "'Long journey,' the first said, and the other nodded in agreement. They talked amongst themselves with nods and the occasional sideways glance at me, which I interpreted as a mix of disbelief and respect. My perception of their good intent was felt as a physical thing, like an ever-so-slight pressure forced through the air, and I breathed it in. "'Do you know Lake Takana?' I asked. "'I'm going there to see the fossils of our first footprints.' I said and pointed to their feet. The two men looked at their feet and then at me confused. I hoped I had not insulted them. Big crocodiles in lake, one of them said. They watched intrigued as I pushed the tube with its new patch back into the tyre. Moments before, I'd been a hopeless fool stuck in open scrub with a flat tyre that I could not fix and now I was like an old pro. I reached for the foot pump and once the tyre was inflated, the two men helped me lift the teepee upright. I knelt to gather my things, and when I stood, they had disappeared into the scrub as silently as they had appeared. I smiled at how things had worked out. Help had miraculously arrived just at that very moment I needed it. <laughs>
0: Sila lema we, baba sila lema we, hey baba sila we, baba sila lema we, baba sila lema we, baba sila we, baba we, Come on, let live to another Come us come to Come